Welcome to the Heart of Leaders podcast, where each week we'll be exploring the frontiers of leadership with those who lead from the heart and put their people first, knowing that ultimately all team accomplishments are driven by people. They know that when they take care of their people, their people will take care of customers, lower costs, and drive customer loyalty and company profitability. These leaders believe that for most companies, culture trumps strategy. And culture starts with how you treat your people and how they treat each other. I'm your host, Rick Barrera, head of faculty for the Heart of Leaders training program in Denver, Colorado, where we teach extraordinary leaders how to build and lead high-performance teams who can consistently deliver exceptional results. Today, I've got Kathy Sunshine with me. Kathy acts as a strategic partner and advisor to families, organizations, and leaders. Kathy has led hundreds of projects that accelerate growth, resolve issues, and reboot performance. She works extensively with family-owned enterprises, coaching multiple generations of leaders, successors, and their businesses. At Heart of Leaders, she works with our explorers, helping them identify who their real customers are and how to align their organizations to serve them. She calls her methodology service structure. In this episode, we're going to dig into Kathy's story. In our next episode, we'll learn more about service structure and how you can use it to build a heart-led company. Kathy, welcome. Hello, Rick. It's so nice to be here. So tell us your story. Start with your, uh, your family. Where'd you grow up? What was that like? Well, that's a broad question. <laughs> um, I grew up in Denver, Colorado, spectacular place to live and grow up. It's where I'm still centered. And I'm the oldest of four girls. Grew up in a, a pretty active, interesting, fun family. And as the oldest, it was a pretty busy place to be. My father was a litigator, an attorney, my mother a home keeper, and um, I think she worked in her family's plumbing company for years as well. But, um, you know, pretty normal, interesting growing up in Denver. And where'd you go to school? I went to school. I went to undergraduate school at CU, but got my MBA at uh, Colorado State University in Fort Collins. I was actually in Denver at the time. And your undergrad was in? Well, my undergrad studies were in psychology, and then I sort of overlapped everything with my MBA. So I, I sort of combined my MBA with undergraduate studies in psychology. So you started way back when, like one of the first co-working spaces. Tell me about that. <laughs> well, people now call it that. But when my kids were little and I've been in sort of insatiably curious most of my life, sort of why I like to watch markets and watch and, and solve problems. Um, but when the kids were little and I was a bit bored, we'd moved into a new area in Denver and I watched the commercial real estate buildings, brand new shiny buildings around us and said, you know, I wonder if I bet I could help them lease their offices and also create a space for people who didn't want large offices. So I, I don't know why I did this, but I was pretty bold. I guess I marched in to talk to Bill Wall and Bill Walters at the time in Denver, and they had built a commercial office building. And I said, why don't you give me a floor of your office space 
and have your people lay it out the way I want because I really think I can help build incubation space for you. I thought if I could create a small, it wasn't that small, but if I could create an environment for smaller entrepreneurs, attorneys, accountants, and others who didn't want their own space and had a secretary there for them, they would grow and then they'd take bigger office spaces from you. And I don't know why they said, oh, sure. They literally said, sure, no problem. I mean, I, I remember. It's empty anyway. You may as well rent yeah. to you. Yeah. Why not? I mean, my knees were shaking a little bit, I think, but, but I actually had no qualms at all about it. I, they gave me a floor of their office space. And I said, but I want you guys to lay this out the way I want it. And they said, okay, because I had this perception that the environment, the architecture would matter to the people officing there, you know, because I wanted it to be engaging, not isolating. And my sister, who was a really crackerjack secretary, she wanted to leave her job anyway. So I convinced her to quit. And I laid out this office space, which at the time had side windows, because what I wanted was the light. So I wanted every office to have an outside window. And then I wanted the inside doors or, or walls to also have windows so that it was really engaging, more like a beehive. And Diana set up the secretarial tables and I helped with that. And we were off and running. We, I, so I became a little entrepreneur. And what was beautiful for me is I got to be with my kids and also go to work and see about making money and, you know, it it wasn't complicated. Interestingly, it grew. And, and this was long before I knew that I'd become a management consultant. I was just solving a problem, I thought, that today is considered really avant-garde and edgy. But that was 40 years ago. I, t- I tend <laughs> to be a little bit, a little bit on the bleeding edge before anybody, you know, scratching their head. You were a woman this, way ahead of your time on that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was a little crazy, but it worked. I mean, I, um, I, interestingly, it was the platform for my consulting practice. It was the place where I learned what I do best. And the people that office in my spaces did grow. And, you know, I moved from one office building, then I was recruited to do it in a brand new bank building. Um, and then I was asked to consult with other commercial developers on whether they should create what was then known, became known as an executive suite. But all the while, my work was the owner of that, but the customers or the clients, the people who leased my offices became my clients. Ironically, they began to access me and ask me questions about their careers, their business dilemmas, and marketing themselves. So I actually built a practice through working with the clients who officed in those spaces. And that's what launched my consulting practice. That's exciting. So uh, why the focus on family-owned enterprises? You know, my clients have all been referral. Started with individuals, moved very quickly into organizations and teams, and then leadership work. And I didn't necessarily segment my clients by industry. And I've pretty much worked in, I would imagine, almost every single industry 
now because I've been in business a long time. But at one point, a good friend of mine and a mentor, Jeff Rothstein, who was, he was a tremendous sort of partner. He's no longer alive, sadly. But Jeff was a brilliant uh, psychologist, psychotherapist, and consultant. And he looked at me and he said, you know, Kathy, I don't think you realize it, but you're really doing family business consulting. And I said, what do you mean? And, and when I looked around, I said, you're right. Probably by that time, a third of my clients were family-owned or family-run enterprises. And I was working at the time with the CEOs. I was doing what's now referred to very commonly as succession planning, uh, organization development, conflict resolution. In family businesses, there are very complex systems operating concurrently. You know, we have family members and we have businesses and we oftentimes the hats that people wear become confused. Right. But Jeff said, you know, and, and he said that the field of consulting called family owned business consulting and there's an organization called the Family Firm Institute, you ought to get involved. So it was FFI, as it's called, was was young and new at the time, but I joined them and I became a fellow in the Family Firm Institute. But what it did was teach me in some ways what I'm already doing and helped reinforce and refine my thinking, educate me about um, what is happening in the field, but also allowed me to know what I'm doing that was different as well. Because family business work is really, it's critically important that you're able to think systemically. And what I then realized after I'd been in practice for a while is that's probably what I bring to my clients is um, the ability to reframe the issue, but also expand the scope of their thinking so that it's more systemic. Well, that's great. So how did you and Colleen Abdullah get connected? I was referred to Colleen to work with her when she was um, managing and leading some small businesses. Um, and so we stayed in touch. And as Colleen's career grew, I would come in at different episodes and times to help fix some problems. Um, and then eventually... She left one of her positions, did some work with me, um, and was recruited away to lead a company called Wow Internet Cable and Phone. I think at the time it was called Wide Open West, and it was a small, faltering internet cable company um, that was headquartered in Denver but had its operations in the Midwest. Not quite sure. I believe one of the board members liked Colorado. But... Um, Eventually, Colleen brought me back in when she became CEO to help turn around this small cable company that was bleeding cash. And that was quite the transformation. We, we talked to Colleen about that in a different episode. Oh, good. Yes. I mean, that's where the fun began in my, I'm going to say, consultant-CEO partnership relationship. It was tremendous for me and hopefully for her to have the opportunity to take a company that 
you know, was hurting badly. And for her to be able to expose her philosophical framework and marry it to my organizational structural framework was a pretty magic experience. I mean, that's where philosophy and intention of a leader really can be bridged to institutionalize itself through a business. And in my work with her, she, we really turned that company around. I mean, she turned that company around as a leader and I was privileged to help put the tools in front of her and the type of organization design that enabled it to actually work. Well, that's very exciting. So I understand you're writing a book about service structure. When can our listeners get a hold of that book? Oh, thank you, Rick. Yeah, I'm pretty immersed in it right now. I'm hoping, my fingers are crossed, that we're looking at first of the year, I think January. End of the year, we should be finished with the manuscript, and hopefully it'll only take a month or two to get it to the public. So I'm looking at this as a 2018 launch. Thanks for asking. So so what's the most frustrating part of the book writing process for you? As a fellow oh, author, I have my question. own pains, yes. but I'm just curious, where's the pain for you? Well, I mean, the what we haven't talked about, um, we talked about this coaching and consulting practice, but it was nine years ago that I looked back to say, what is it that informs my thinking? What over the last 30 years keeps working? What is it that's working? And um, the the thing that has worked continually is my, um, is that I've been developing structure that isn't like an org structure, but it's an org design that has enabled at the time, probably 30 or 40 companies to have these breakthroughs and then to grow. And I'm interested in creating breakthroughs. I think we cycle through problems when we don't get above them. And I've seen that hundreds and hundreds of times And this service structure enable people to, to actually see their organizations through an entirely different lens. So um, nine years ago, when I looked back, I had this epiphany that said, it's the structure. It's the container, it's the design, and that's what's enabled these breakthroughs because we're asking different questions. So I, the frustration with the book, to come back to your question, is that after my epiphany, I started writing a book. Now, that was nine years ago. It was also 2009, eight, nine, and the market was going crazy. So even though I got very excited and started the book, one of the biggest frustrations is I had to leave the book there and go back to work. So over the last nine years, it's been sitting, gathering dust. But the thinking and the philosophy underlying it has stayed extremely ripe and critical, I think, for the market and our clients. So I couldn't let it go. So frustration number one was matching the book and the thinking to the timing of the market. So most of service structure is all about the market and the customer. Well, ironically, I was living my own reality because the market hadn't in some ways caught up with me. So now that I'm back to, okay, this thing's getting out. And what I'm watching is people actually 
are engaging with it. They understand it more. The times are different. It's more obvious why the need exists. I'm enjoying that. But frustration number two is just how long it takes to write a book, Rick. I mean, <laughs> and maybe, maybe I, you know, people say, don't be such a perfectionist, but I actually want to make the points and get them out. So frustration number two is my assumptions of what writing a book looks like and the reality are just really quite different. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So who are your most impactful mentors and what did you learn from them? My greatest mentors have been my clients. Now, I, I know that sounds ridiculous, but I've told them that because the, the most impactful mentor is Jeff Rothstein. But my mentors have all really been my clients who've posed more and more complex issues, brought more outrageous questions and situations to me than I could ever get by reading case studies. That they trust me to listen to their case study and help them unwire it and unwind it. They have mentored me because they've challenged my thinking and they've birthed in me a way of thinking. It was them that actually created the way I think today. And then I look back and say, how do I think? And I think they've created it. So the honor has been to actually have people access me with questions that are extremely complex and daunting for others and then allowing me to partner to help unwind it. Now, if you call that a mentor, I do. Yeah, I have the same experience. Most of my greatest content has come from my clients, you know, questions and issues. And it's, you know, it's interesting when I talk to other consultants, they say, you know, well, how do you get a company to trust you? And I say, well, you know, I know you think that's your biggest problem, but the, but the bigger problem is that when they do trust you, then they go, okay, well, you know, you're so smart here, solve that. <laughs> right. And then you go, oh, okay. <laughs> and then you're really challenged. And then you up the ante. Yeah. And then the next client does another one. And it's like, whoa. But it is challenging our approach, our way of thinking, and our frame of reference. And I honest, it's, it's an honor, as I'm sure you know. But, it, you know, if I look at who's taught me the most, it's been my clients because they've forced on me the... Uh, ability to get out of the way, to actually listen openly and without a lot of assumptions so that I can help unlock things. Now, Jeff Rothstein, whom I've mentioned a few times, was himself a brilliant, complex thinker. And so when I would go to him to ask questions or bring him in on a case, his mentoring was invaluable because he was able to take it up a level and expand the scope of what I was thinking so that I didn't get blocked. So that's the, those are really who have made up my teachers. So tell us about your personal leadership philosophy and where it came from. My personal leadership philosophy. Hmm. Well, you have a point of view about leadership. I absolutely have a point of view about leadership, but it 
defines leadership with a probably a capital L, meaning we're all sort of leading in our way. We're sort of leading our world. Um, my philosophy of leadership is that a leader who is guiding a company like your heart of leaders participants and what do you call them? Explorers, I believe. Explorers. Um, yes. Your heart of leaders explorers. My philosophy about that is in leading anything, you have to know yourself first. So philosophically, when I was saying that the clients, I really appreciate the client's dilemmas because I have to get out of my way and not have an opinion about them in the beginning. Um, I think a leader has to do that as well. I think a leader has to know enough about their assumptions that they can release them to look at their organizations fresh. So number one, I think the key responsibility of the leader is to know themselves well enough to know when their biases can cloud what they're seeing to be true. And I think that's critical. The second is to understand intentions. You know, intentions precede actions. And uh, let's take Colleen as an example. Colleen's intentions were to build a company that has the character and the values that she found important, meaning everybody participates. And my third belief that I would say Colleen shares with me probably is that you're only who you're perceived to be. So the customer matters. And if a leader goes into a company, assuming it, the leader knows exactly what that company needs without examining the customers, um, they can take a company way off base. So, it's, you know, a leader needs to be curious and vulnerable to be able to look and say, I have a bias that's like this, but I'm going to listen now to what my clients, my customers, and my employees are saying and use my knowledge then to guide. So I think guiding a new way is helping unlock problems and solve problems, but from a standpoint of staying curious first and maintaining empathy and intuition but trusting the power of where the market is taking you. So my, again, my philosophy is stay open, stay curious, and identify your intentions because they precede your actions. We can go from there to, because I think awareness begets change and vision will define the direction of the change. But to be aware of what the reality is, I think is the most challenging leadership trait we can have. Yep. I think that ties into, you know, what Colleen did because, you know, the whole television part of cable was sort of dysfunctional and she 
had control over internet and saw that, you know, that was growing and that's where she put the focus. And, you know, by listening to the market, she was exceptionally successful. So sounds like, like what you're talking about. So what do you do for fun? Tell us about the fun side of Kathy Sunshine. Oh, I just uh, went to the Bronco game with my grandson. My fun is with my grandchildren right now. They are just the light of my life. I mean, they just, they're, they're great fun. Now, in addition to that and writing, um, it's, some, it's travel. You know, I'm, I've really enjoyed Santa Fe and France and traveling, but um, the fun is seeing grandkids grow up. Well, that's great. So, Kathy, we're going to ask you to come back and talk to us about service structure. So I know our listeners are looking forward to that. I'll look forward to it. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Kat. Would you like to meet Kathy Sunshine in person and hang out? You can. Just make the decision to join us for the next Heart of Leaders training program in Denver. Call us right now at 858-248-3162 or go to heartofleaderspodcast.com. We believe that Heart of Leaders is a movement started by boomers, accelerated by Gen Xers, and demanded by millennials. To learn more, find us online at heartofleaderspodcast.com, where we blog, post articles, and book reviews, and respond to your questions. We invite you to join the conversation.